Good morning. I am so excited to be with you in this time of teaching. We're in a series titled Five Questions of Self-Examination. We're in part two, and what we're discovering is um, how we need to take a true look at where we are spiritually. Now, few are the people who find this a comfortable prospect to truly look at where we are and how we're doing inwardly and spiritually as individuals. Jesus himself actually recognized that we find much more ease in pointing out the speck that is in our brother's eye than talking about the plank that is in our own eye. You find his analogy of this in Matthew chapter 7. So the task of self-examination becomes a an arduous and a very challenging discipline for for many individuals i would include myself in that we we would much rather talk about how others are doing than to take a true look at ourselves but but what an amazing opportunity god's word gives us to truly look at ourselves one of the new testament writers james commented that we should consider god's truth like a mirror And that we should never turn away from what God teaches us, forgetting what has been revealed. But we must look intently to hear that truth and how that truth must affect our own lives. So again, welcome to this teaching series. Five questions of of self-examination. We discovered two questions earlier and we're going to look at the next two questions today. Driven by a principle of self-examination that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. This truth becomes the origin from where this study was birthed. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul reminded the first century church how to consider one's inner self before participating in public worship. Specifically for Paul, this verse that, that we see here, a man ought to examine himself, references a time when when Paul was correcting error concerning how people publicly participated in communion. Uh, this, this verse comes from a larger context of 1 Corinthians where uh, instruction was given on how to come together publicly and to worship genuinely. Uh, one of those ways of worship was communion. And Paul wrote, before you partake of communion, examine yourself. Now, why would Paul give this exhortation? Well, the reason remains very simple for you and for me, as it did for the the present day into which Paul wrote these words. If we are to truly worship God and to say, God, you're you're the most important part of our lives. If we are to truly say, Jesus, I'm living for you, then beyond mere words or lip service that many of the Old Testament prophets confronted Israel over, beyond merely spoken words, we must examine our hearts to determine if our hearts truly resonate the words we sing, the, the truth we preach, the, the relationships we publicly recognize. At times, we may find greater ease in simply demonstrating with our actions and with our words the rightness of our Christian faith than looking at our hearts and truly determining how we are privately 
living out our faith in Jesus Christ. And I love those words from from David, that great psalmist who has taught us from centuries ago how to praise and honor God genuinely. David proclaimed in Psalm 139, verse 23, Oh God, search my heart. Literally from the Hebrew, examine my inner man. Examine who I truly am, God. And and if there is any need for your correction in me, then God, make that correction. It is little wonder why David was called a man after God's own heart. For he truly desired that God would scrutinize over his heart and point out those pieces of his life that were not pleasing to God so that David ultimately could live a life pleasing to the Lord. So, So I ask you today, How well are you opening your heart to God to say, God, search me, point out those errors in me. We we may find it easier to say, God, look at how much our brother or sister needs your correction. And maybe the greater task should be God. Instead of looking out at how others are doing, God, help me to examine my own life. And so this becomes the the Holy Spirit energy and drive that brings us into this study. So today we focus on Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. This will reference the first question or the first question we we address today. This is actually question three in our study series. And so Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 proclaims, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Question three. Are you spiritually hungry and thirsty or are you easily satisfied with brief moments of religious involvement? Let's ask this again. Are you, remember, this is a step in self-examination spiritually. Are you spiritually hungry and thirsty or... Are you easily satisfied with brief moments of religious involvement? Are we truly hungering and thirsting after what Jesus Christ has proclaimed and after his truth and after his presence in our lives? Or do we find a simple visit to church once a week enough? Do we find a simple reading of a devotion enough? Do we find a two-minute prayer before we begin our day enough? Now, I'm not judging anyone for the minimum, but I'm proclaiming to you today, especially if your faith is in Jesus and you're following him, I proclaim to you a challenging question that I believe we all need to reconcile with in our personal walk. And let's personalize this. Are we spiritually hungry and thirsty or do we become easily satisfied with these brief religious interludes or these brief moments of of involvement with church. And particularly, balance this with your public church life. When you you come to church, when when you visit a website in a web broadcast like this, do you check off and say, okay, I've I've had my I've had my quota for the week spiritually? Or does your heart, does your soul yearn for more? Could could you be characterized as one who is spiritually hungry and thirsty? So let's move deep in this uh, 
in this question for just a moment by looking first at the context of Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Let's consider the, the, the contextual piece and then the symbolic piece and then the practical piece of these very familiar words. First, contextually, Matthew 5, 6 references a greater picture of what has been known throughout the ages of the church as the Beatitudes. From Matthew 5, verse 3 through verse 12, there are as many as eight Beatitudes that define the kingdom priorities Jesus taught to his followers. The the Sermon on the Mount becomes the, the greater context, but here contextually we find as a part of the Beatitudes, this fourth one listed in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now again, we're addressing the question, are we, are we spiritually hungry and thirsty? Or are we easily satisfied with our church involvement periodically or episodically? And let's consider the words of Jesus as he declared that those who truly hunger and thirst after righteousness, oh, they will be filled. I believe sometimes we we hear sermons and we, we listen to to music that is, is uplifting and we, we read scriptures and devotions and maybe we listen to a small group leader teach us or we hear our parents make comments about faith and maybe sometimes all of these truths fall flat in our lives. Has that ever happened to you? Or maybe you hear something you know it's from God's heart, but you feel that it falls flat like you're indifferent to what's being said. Possibly the answer to that dilemma lies right here in these truths. Perhaps we are not being filled with what God has offered because we're not hungering and thirsting after God because we become satisfied with the little sound bites that we receive in our well-organized religious calendar or religious schedule. When Jesus interrupts that schedule, he, he does incredible damage to our superficial routines, which he needs to. To bring us to this point of truly hungering and thirsting after his righteousness, because therein we find true fulfillment. So contextually, this truth represents the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes actually finds its name from the Latin Beatus, which, which defines the idea of blessedness. These eight Beatitudes begin with blessed are, referencing the uh, inner soulful joy and fulfillment that comes from those who are truly seeking after Christ and after his priorities for our lives. When we seek him and when our hearts are open to him, then we become blessed. We become those who are fulfilled and who have gained this deep and and stirring experience of having our inner man completely satisfied in Jesus, not falsely satisfied in, in the things of the world. And so blessed are those who hunger after Jesus and his truths for our lives, his presence in our lives. All of this defines Jesus calling in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So we've considered this contextually. Now let's consider this symbolically. The phrase hunger and thirst represents two very dramatic and dynamic needs 
in the life of man. In the day of Jesus, individuals understood hunger and thirst much more significantly than you or I may understand these words today. Today, uh, most people, not all, but most people can satisfy their hunger at will. Today, not all, but most people, especially in our context, can satisfy their thirst at will. But not so in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, most people listening to his words, and if I understand the history of the Sermon on the Mount, then we, we discover that most of Jesus' audience who heard these words lived on the brink of hunger. Uh, food was not at a significant supply. There were even those who understood thirst for many times they would travel through arid regions, desert regions without any water. So when Jesus used the phrase hunger and thirst in a spiritual context, his audience had little challenge to fully understand the deep and driving desire of one who is truly hungry and cannot find adequate food and one who is truly thirsty and cannot find an adequate drink of water to quench that thirst. And so Jesus symbolically measures our yearning for the things of God with someone who truly understands hunger and thirst. Today, I, I, I feel that many of us in a, in a culture that has plenty compared to other cultures around the globe, I, I find that we may be challenged to truly understand the depth of the symbolism here, hungering and thirsting. This may be why many of us, again, do not find fulfillment in our walk of faith because perhaps we've identified hunger and thirst as more of something that we can reach out and grab when convenient. Uh, we'll participate in those spiritual moments when convenient. I'll attend church or I'll, I'll visit my small, small group when convenient. I can assure you, if we live in a life of convenience, we'll never answer this question appropriately. Are we truly spiritually hungry and thirsty or are we easily satisfied with brief moments of religious involvement? Well, we would never answer that correctly if we truly do not understand hungry and thirsting. So having looked at this phrase contextually and symbolically, referencing particularly the words hunger and thirst, now let's embrace this practically. Practically, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Practically indicates how we actually practice this verse. So let's focus on the word righteousness before we move further in our time of teaching today. In the Greek text, I think you'll find this interesting. The term righteousness actually has with it a definite article. So that in our English language, we could actually translate this after the righteousness. So Jesus teaches that if we are to be filled, satisfied, overflowing with, with a heart that is that is truly like that cup David described, overflowing, then we should be hungering and thirsting after the righteousness. Now the significance of the difference between just righteousness and the righteousness comes to us when we, when we really embrace why the definite article is used. The definite article is used to indicate that the subject of the one speaking Jesus actually speaks of the righteousness that we can only find from the Father through the Son. 
Jesus would later, after these words were spoken, sometime later would obviously go to the cross. And through his death and resurrection, you and I are given the opportunity to, to become right with God and to be one, even as John 1, 12 indicates, one who has been adopted, given the right to become children of God. This is not a a direction toward how to be more ecumenically postured or, or religiously astute in, in our activity. This guides us to understanding that righteousness is not some abstract picture of trying to do good things or, or attempting to be a good church member. Righteousness references what God has accomplished for us in Jesus so that we can be made sons and daughters of the Most High, sons and daughters of God. And so when we truly yearn, do you remember the symbolism of hunger and thirst? As one who lives on the brink of, of starvation, as one who's traveling without, uh, without a drink to quench the thirst, when we truly yearn to grow in our understanding of what God has done for us in Christ, when we truly desire that Jesus would rule and reign in our lives, then, then we are truly seeking his righteousness. And when we seek his righteousness with, with all of our hearts, when we desire and hunger and thirst to walk with Christ and to have his fellowship and his presence and to truly honor him in all things, then we are filled. And so we turn back to this question, are you spiritually hungry and thirsty? Are you truly desiring more of Jesus? Or is the fact that you can find a place ecumenically once a week on a Sunday, does that do it for you? If so, then, then, then there needs to be some reconsideration of who Jesus is in your life. So are we truly hungering and thirsting after him? And after understanding more of what he has accomplished for us. Oh, what an amazing, what an amazing truth. <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for, for they shall be filled. And before we move on to uh, the final question for today. I uh, just want to share with you three facts of the righteousness. And I pray that you'll find this encouraging. Facts of righteousness. Righteousness represents God's blessing of salvation through the Son, Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on the cross has offered us forgiveness of sin so that we can come to him by faith. Second, righteousness represents the spiritual context of one's submission to the Lordship of Jesus. The context of you and I saying, Jesus, you're my Savior and Lord, becomes the focus of righteousness, meaning what Christ will continue to do in our lives to, to conform our lives more into, into, into His way and into the image of God, bringing us to the third fact. Righteousness represents that right standing with God and our conduct in life which exhibits that right standing to others. Paul wrote in Romans 6, 13, present your instruments, your bodies, your physical extremities, and all of your physical self, present them as instruments of righteousness, indicating Jesus is Lord. So what are the three facts of righteousness? Repres the, uh, the representation of God's salvation that brings us to him. The, the representation of the context of our submission to the Lordship of Christ. We submit to him and his ways. And then the representation of our right standing with God, even in our life and conduct, as we say, God, take 
all of my life and use it as instruments of righteousness. So, wow, Jesus said, if you hunger and thirst after that righteousness, his salvation, his lordship, and the change that he brings in our lives as, as we present our bodies as instruments of righteousness, if we hunger after that righteousness, if we thirst after that righteousness, wow, we shall be filled. What, uh, what an amazing reminder we have and what a challenging question are you spiritually hungry and thirsty or are you easily satisfied with brief moments of religious involvement one of the early church fathers offered this reminder now listen carefully to these words i think you'll find them certainly encouraging uh, with this question full stomachs and jaded palates take the edge from our hunger and our thirst for righteousness <laughs> the the abundance that we can attain in our lives physically and materially can sometimes, according to this quote, take the edge off of that which we should be hungering for in our spiritual lives. Uh, have we become so pulled away from Jesus because of other affections in this world that, that we're satisfied with just a touch of, of, of recognizing him? Have we become so sedated with affections that are in this world that appease only our flesh that we we have our appetite for Jesus jaded? We have our palates <laughs> disrupted so much that we're okay with just a little bit of, of, of faith, a little bit of Jesus because maybe we've been jaded by other things in this world that attempt to to satisfy us. Oh, you, you know, as well as I do, that whatever we try to satisfy our lives with in this world is never enough and we have to reach for more. Only Jesus satisfies. Only this righteousness, God making us right with him through Christ, satisfies. Are you hungry for this? Are you thirsty for this? For what Christ has done to make us right with God? Or are you being uh, seduced and led astray by false feelings of satisfaction in this world? Wow. So that's question three. These are heavy questions, I understand. Again, this teaching series uh, stands titled as self-examination, which is hardly fun, but always very necessary. Now, let's look to question four as we close out our time of teaching today. And again, after today, there'll be at least one other question will embrace as this teaching series continues. But for today, we close with question four. Th this is tough. And, and for this, we move to uh, a verse deeper in the, in the New Testament, Galatians chapter two, verse 20. But let's address the question. Are you as privately committed to Jesus as much as it appears you are publicly? This becomes a staggering, firm, and seemingly blunt, Question, are you as privately committed to Jesus as much as it appears you are publicly? Now, because this question stands so significantly heavy for most of us, because this becomes very personal. Again, we're examining ourselves. How well do we do in response to this question? Are you as privately committed to, to Jesus as much as it appears you are publicly? I find myself postured in church on Sundays, one may say. I find myself speaking well to my neighbors. I, I find myself serving well, one may say. But, but when the lights go out, 
when it's just you and Jesus alone with your thoughts, with your ambitions, with your desires? Are you as privately committed to Jesus as much as it appears you are publicly? Again, because of the heaviness of this question, we turn to, I would say, one of the most intense verses on personal Christian identity that we'll ever find in the in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is a lengthy verse, but, but join me in reading this verse. This verse stands very familiar with many. But there uh, stands here a word that confuses a lot of individuals. The word crucified. So let's look at this verse together. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Straight from the scripture. Follow me on the screen. I am crucified with Christ. Let's pause there. The Apostle Paul, the first century pastor Paul, you've heard me quote him a lot in this teaching time. The first century pastor Paul now gives a personal testimony. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. So obviously this crucifixion has nothing to do with a physical death. Because Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, yet I'm still living. He references crucifixion as a spiritual application and references his living here as physical. Spiritually, I'm crucified with Jesus, even though I am physically alive. Yet, even though I'm alive, yet not I, but Christ in me. So now Paul better explains why crucified references a spiritual application. I'm dying to myself so that Christ becomes the the only force of life in me, not just one of many affections or not just first affection with, with other affections being a close second. That's not at all what Paul states. Paul states, I'm crucified with Christ. So spiritually, I am dead to anything and any other affection except Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. And And even though I live, yet not I, but Christ in me, he continues. And the life that I now live in the flesh. So he's simply elaborating here in part two of the verse on that which he said in part one. And the life that I now live in this fleshly body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you see the intensity and the dramatic thrust of the personal application of this verse. I am crucified. Now I love how this personal application becomes real from the greater context. So much as we did uh, with the previous verse here, let's just consider this contextually for just a moment. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 through 18, Paul begins almost in an in a legal argument against those who were still depending upon the Mosaic law for their righteousness with God. In other words, even in Paul's day, even in the Galatian churches, there were those who depended upon a rigid legalistic obedience to the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible as we know them now. There were those who depended so much on obeying Moses' law that they felt as long as they kept the law, they were right with God. Well, Paul would teach in the letter to the Galatian churches from the New Testament of That nullifies grace. May it never be. That is a false gospel that you can be made right with God simply by legalistically doing good things. Paul said that's never the truth. Never has been, never will be. 
because God's grace is supreme. Now, obviously, the law was followed in the Old Testament because of the covenant. But now the new covenant comes and Jesus, through his death and resurrection, gives us grace that that when we trust in what Christ has done, we're brought into a right standing with God. Paul understood this. This truth changed Paul's life from a Pharisee of religious elitism and legalism to one who humbly followed Jesus. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. Who am I personally? I'm living for Jesus. Jesus is alive in me. This becomes my identity. So in, in, in Galatians chapter 2, the greater context, uh, reveals from verse 16 to 18, Paul's uh, argument, almost in a legal sense, against those who were following the Mosaic law too much. Uh, but then in verse uh, 19 and 20, Paul shifts to this testimony. But what I find interesting is that when Paul spoke about uh, the, the error of following the law, Paul used the plural pronoun we. In verse 16, Paul said, yet we know that one is not justified by works. In verse 17, Paul said, we ourselves are found to be sinners. Verse 18 and 19 and 20, Paul shifts to the personal I because he demonstrates his own commitment and his own faith in Jesus. We know, Paul wrote to all the churches, that we can't be made right by simply obeying the law and doing good things. To defend that argument to the we, the church, Paul points to his own testimony to say, spiritually, I'm dead to every affection but Jesus. I'm crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who lives, but Jesus who lives in me. So the question's a tough question. Are you as privately committed to Jesus as much as it appears you are publicly? Can you truly say that this is you? Or are you dependent too much on the religious function of your life, on the church functions and the church programs? You know, interestingly enough, another way of addressing this question would be with a sub-question, uh, maybe a, a little more practical inquiry. And I would, I would form another understanding of this question in this way. Do you truly own your Christian identity or are you living vicariously through the programs of the church? Do you truly own your identity as a Christian? Do you truly say, I'm living my life this way? Or do you live your life vicariously through the programs of the church? Do you allow your ecumenical life to define your faith? Or is it rather just an expression of who you truly are? As one who's been changed by Jesus. Throughout the ages, great leaders of the church have testified that there could be as many as 80% of people who regularly attend church that really don't know Jesus. That, that is a sad commentary. Even, even, if, even if that were partially right, or even if the percentage was 50%, that's still a very sad reality that there may be many who are doing well publicly. The presentation of religion is there. But if you were to take an inventory privately, perhaps there are many who may not be able to reconcile their life with this truth. And this does not simply represent Paul's testimony. This becomes a beautiful summary of the gospel. Again, I think one of the most intense and dramatic explanations of one who follows Jesus found in the whole New Testament can be found here. I am crucified with Jesus. I no longer live. It becomes Jesus living in me. So what a powerful explanation of of what it means to 
to personally and privately in our own heart to be committed to Jesus more than just a public presentation. I'd like to share with you before we close today um, three very important facts of our identity privately as a follower of Jesus. Fact one, and I hope these will help you to reconcile this question. Fact one comes from Romans chapter 12, verse one. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice references a singular focus. Church, all of your bodies physically, your lives, present them as a living sacrifice, one sacrifice to Jesus. The first fact that will help you to resolve this question in the right way represents the fact of personal responsibility. You are responsible to Jesus. More than you being responsible to the church or to your parents or to your student pastor or to uh, any mentor or minister, you're responsible to Jesus. This is why Paul proclaimed again in Romans 12, 1, hey, let's present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable expression of worship. So fact number one that will help you to resolve this in the right way, you are responsible to Jesus for, for, for every piece of your life, which takes us to fact number two. I love this. In, in Romans 12, 3, we read, do not think more of yourself than you should, but consider humbly that each person has been given a particular allotment of faith to fulfill what God has desired. So yes, fact number one, you're responsible. Fact number two, you've been equipped to meet that responsibility. You're equipped to be responsible. Because Romans 12, 3 reminds us we've been given an allotment of faith to fulfill our calling. That word allotment, meros, means a portion. It, it really is a very familiar word to Mark 6 when Jesus passed out the, the fish and the bread for the, for the disciples to give to the crowd. It's a very similar word meaning your portion. Romans 12, 3 again, I think not more of yourself than you should, but consider the allotment, the meros. In the Greek, the allotment of faith that Jesus has given you. Jesus has equipped you to fulfill your responsibility. So fact number one, you're responsible. Fact number two, if your faith is in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, you've been, you've been equipped by Jesus for that responsibility. Fact number three, this is, will be the least favorite of all the three facts. You're accountable. In Galatians 6, 5, we're reminded that each person must bear his own load. And contextually from Galatians, that has a lot of different applications for the follower of Jesus. But one significant overriding application is that we, we're accountable. We are strongly accountable to Jesus Christ. We're responsible. We've been equipped to be responsible, so there's no excuse. Because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We must follow his yearnings and his, his directions so that we are truly seeking to live for Jesus in every area of our life. And the third fact is we are accountable. When we read from Galatians 6, 5, you must bear your own load. We're responsible for, for how we're living for Jesus right where we are. So I want to close today with this analogy using Galatians 6, 5 as a springboard for this analogy. When we read uh, each person must bear his own load, the, the word load there can actually reference what you and I might term as a backpack. You and I are responsible for, for what lies to us. I, I cannot hold anyone responsible but myself. I'm accountable for how I live my faith in my home, in my calling, publicly before others. I, I, can't, 
I can't hold you accountable for how I live. I'm, I'm accountable for my backpack. Each one must bear his own load. You know, when, when, when we travel as a family, we, we have, you know, suitcases that we check in when we arrive at the ticket counter at the airport. But each person also has their backpack. I love that we've raised all of our girls to travel with their backpack. Even when I've traveled with my oldest daughter overseas on different mission uh, adventures, I make certain that she has her backpack and I have mine. Very rarely will she hand me hers or will I hand mine to her. We have to carry our own. That's not only uh, responsible and accountable, but when you travel overseas and you have your own identification, at times that's checked. You need to be prepared. You need to have that with you. You need, you need to be ready. You're accountable for what is yours. Symbolically, your, your job, your, your money, your family, your relationships, even your material possessions, they're in your backpack, symbolically speaking. You, you are responsible. You have been equipped to be responsible through the Holy Spirit, and therefore you are accountable. You're accountable for what you say to others. You're accountable for how you treat everyone, especially those in the household of faith. You're accountable. And so am I. I mean, right now at this moment, uh, when, I, when I look down at the computer screens that are helping us with this broadcast, I see just a faint reflection of my faith, but I can, of my face. I can look down and see myself when I'm teaching this truth. I'm, I'm accountable as well. So are you. Let's take a moment to look in that mirror. And reconcile that we're accountable to Jesus for how we're living for him. And we can't just put on a public display. Our accountability begins right here. Can we truly say we're crucified with Christ? Can we truly say that even though we live our life in this place, we're living for him? Not for ourselves. Reconcile this verse deep in your heart so that you can truly live even as Paul proclaimed so that you can rightly resolve this fourth question. Are you as privately committed to Jesus as much as it appears you are publicly? Hey, today I share these two questions with you. I know they're, they're heavy questions. I know they're packed. We looked at two powerful passages of Scripture. Uh, but I pray that you'll uh, join me in keeping these questions before you. I had a, a wonderful friend who's a member of this church to come to me after last week's opening uh, sermon in this teaching series when we looked at questions one and two. And you can go back to our website and look up that sermon and, and see the uh, previous two questions if you missed that. But a dear friend and member of this congregation came up after that sermon and said, hey, those two questions were simple, but they were tough. And I don't think I scored very well. <laughs> When he said that, I smiled and just felt so great inside because that's the, that's the approach. Let's allow the question to actually take us to the verse. So the verse measures our hearts and challenges us. And, and let's allow the Holy Spirit to show us how we can, we can better reconcile ourselves to the truths of God's word that calls us to serve him with a pure heart and with a committed faith. Hey, thank you for being a part of, of this second part of the teaching series uh, of, of, of self-examination and we're going we're to look at at least one more maybe maybe two other questions as we gather next week but for this moment I'd love to pray with you and you've heard a lot of statements today about what it means to follow Jesus but perhaps you've never you've never had someone to just look right at you and to say hey Jesus loves you he has 
He has his gift of salvation for you. You don't have to live in, in, the, in the confines of failure and sin and shame and, and the, the influx of negativism in this world. You can be safe from that. You can, you can have security in your life. And the only way to have that security is through Jesus. And the Bible tells us if we confess him as Lord, if we believe in our heart that God's raised him from the dead, we, we will be saved from our sin and from all that could pull us away from, from, from the love of God. So I pray that your faith is in Jesus. If not, you can pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in what you did on the cross. I receive you into my life. I trust you. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. And I commit my life to you. You can pray that prayer. And, and Jesus hears you. And he will save you. He'll forgive you. And on that relationship with him is, and that relationship with God is, is the greatest gift in the world. And I do not desire that you would miss that gift. If you want to know more about what it means to, to know Jesus, if you want to know more what it, about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, there's a website location on the screen right now. Check that out. Uh, reach out to us. We'll reach right back and make certain that we can have that conversation that uh, confirms in your heart that Jesus uh, is your Savior and Lord. Don't just leave guessing. Let's know for certain. Reach out to us. and We're ready to speak with you. Follower of Jesus, let these questions continue to challenge your faith as we walk forward. Love you a lot. I'd love to pray with you now before we go. Father God, thank you for speaking to our hearts. Thank you for these questions that are so incredibly challenging. Help us, God, to reconcile ourselves with your truth. Help us to take that real look on the inside and, and not to be concerned, overly concerned with the heart of our brother. But Father, first, help us to be concerned with our own heart. Thank you for your loving truth. Grow us, Father God, as we walk forward as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Thanks for joining us. Love you a lot. See you next week, part three, five questions of self-examination. God bless.